This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. It's 12 o'clock and you're on ORFM Dunedin. Over the next hour, we take the pulse of Aotearoa Dunedin's creative scene. Interviews and commentary on theatre, dance, music, the visual arts and more. Welcome to Arts Hub. Kia ora koutou. Good afternoon everyone. Welcome to the Arts Hub this Thursday, the 29th of July. Today our guests are curators at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, Lauren Gutzel and Lucy Hammonds, who will talk about the exciting Joanna Margaret Paul show opening Saturday the 7th of August, which also includes a book launch. But today their main focus will be on Joanna's temperate paintings of the Stations of the Cross in Port Chalmers. Then we will hear from Margot Barton, Professor in Fashion at the Otago Polytechnic and Creative Director of ID Dunedin Fashion, and Sally McMillan, lawyer and board member of ID Dunedin Fashion. Lauren Gutzel and Lucy Hammonds are the two dynamic and forward-thinking curators at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. They are well-versed in collaborating on projects, Ralph Hotri Atete to Resist, in collaboration with Christchurch Art Gallery Tapuna o Waifetu was their latest collaborative exhibition. The Joanna Margaret Paul exhibition has been developed in conjunction with project partner Sergeant Gallery Tafari Orehua Whanganui, but there is one special treat for Otipoti Dunedin, and that is the proximity of the church, which holds Joanna's temperate paintings of the Stations of the Cross in Port Chalmers. Welcome, Lauren and Lucy. Thank you for taking time out of what must be a very busy schedule leading up to the Joanna Margaret Paul exhibition. Although our listeners will be keen to hear about the viewing times for the temporal works in Port Chalmers, I'm sure that the exhibition will be of great interest, as will the associated publication. Could you overview the exhibition and the publication for us? Kia ora, Linda. Thanks for having us. Um, it's It's been really nice, actually, to um, have an escape from the gallery because it is a busy week um, as we've been watching the works um, of joiners come up onto the wall. So, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here today, be part of your show. Um, so... This exhibition has its origins in a conversation, um, some conversations Lauren and I had several years ago now, um, where we brought to our programming table at the gallery the um, the proposition that we felt um, that Joanna Margaret Paul was a very important artist to um, New Zealand's recent art history um, and was um, not so much overlooked, but... Um, had reached a point of a high level of interest in the contemporary moment uh, and we felt that it was the time to delve into an expanded survey of her career to kind of provide the context for the resurgence of interest in her work and so we proposed a major exhibition and a major book on on her career Uh, and we will be coming to the point of Revealing all of that to our audiences uh, next next Saturday, the seventh of August. Yeah. Well, I have to say I had a quick look at the publication um, today, uh, which you are holding in your hot little hand <laughs> until the opening, and it's just stunning. Are you are you happy with that? Yes, we're thrilled with the publication. Uh, our 
designer at the gallery, Karina McLeod, did such a fabulous job and it's so sympathetic to Joanna's work. Um, I think we really wanted there to be a strong relationship between what the exhibition was trying to achieve and then what the publication is doing as an independent uh, book, but also yeah, supporting the co-papa of the project that really wants to examine and reassess Paul's career, as Lucy said, in a sort of contemporary moment. And we really wanted to bring all the different threads of her creative life together, um, you know, for our audiences and reflect on her journeys that she made around Aotearoa. And so those things happen both in the show and in the book. So we, yeah, we're really thrilled. That's excellent. And would this be considered to be quite a large exhibition? I know it's been something that's been worked on for a long, long time, but um, does it take up a lot of space in the galleries? Yes, it does. It takes up three of our galleries across the first floor. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many works... Last time we looked at our list, there was about 170 artworks in the show. Um, and that includes major painting, but also there's series of works where, um, you know, there might be five or so works in a, a particular series. So it is quite expensive. It takes up most of the first floor at the gallery. Um, so it does feel very generous. There's lots to look at. Yeah, the exhibition begins <clears throat> sort of at the point where um, Paul emerges into her career, you know, her full-time career as a painter and, and an artist, which is around 1970, which was at the point at which she'd finished studying at Elam and had moved to Aotearoa. Um And at that time, you know, the, the city here was... Um, you had a very strong and thriving artistic community. She became part of that, and she was a really important contributor to that. She was well-travelled. She was very knowledgeable. She um, was confident, I think, in her own artistic voice, and she made a very strong contribution and a strong impact at that time. So one of the great things about the exhibition here uh, is the ability to bring together a very, very strong body of work, including some major paintings um, painted in Aotearoa, around Port Chalmers, out at Seacliff, and those places. Um, from the early 1970s which will be a surprise to some people and then accompanying those are um, you know I think that that very first moment of the exhibition is a really important moment because what it does is establishes a sort of scope of looking um, which which really characterizes Paul as a significant artist so she's working as making major paintings, um, working cons consistently uh, in the field of drawing, which is an important part of her practice, but it weaves into that her work as an experimental filmmaker and as a photographer. So you get this um, this expanded uh, approach to creative, creative practice, which is what uh, I think is significant, very significant about her as a figure because it very much um, positions her as a sort of antecedent to the way contemporary artists now would typically work in the sort of in an expanded way um, and and you see that at that very first moment of the exhibition and then you see it repeated over and over again as time passes mm. that's actually quite innovative in so many ways because I know when I went to art school um, the focus was on you chose one media to work within and that was quite, you know, not that long ago really. So um, it's almost like she came out of art school and started thinking in multiple ways. Mm. Yeah, I think that's something that um, we do talk about in the book and that relationship uh, 
between Joanna's way of working but also her mother's way of working, Janet Poole, who was also an artist. And they had a very strong position on sort of uh, not being sort of bullied by trends and swept along and what was currently the thing to do at art schools and things, but to kind of have faith in your own voice, your own position. And I think the... Um, yeah, the multidisciplinary nature of the way that Joanna worked, but also the way in which she really um, asserted the importance of lived experience as her subject matter um, was something that she, you know, consistently did from when she was at art school in the late 1960s right through her career. Um, and I think those two things together is is what has resonated so much now in a contemporary moment um, for artists working in Aotearoa. Yeah, um, that is quite very interesting. And so how old would she have been in the 70s? She can't have been all that old. Uh, no, well, she was born in 1945. Right, so, so. She, yeah, so she would have been in her maybe early 30s, possibly, or late 20s. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the, those kinds of considerations were considered to be quite radical in some ways, you know. And the other thing that I might just ask you about is that idea that most of us, well, most of the people I've spoken to think of her as interiors or um, looking outside from an interior, um, whereas you're talking about these works in Dunedin where she possibly was ex- just looking at where she was now living or some outside. Mm. Yeah, I think the interior's been... I mean, it has been a central curatorial focus for the exhibition but in ways that maybe aren't as expected when people think of the interior like the title of the exhibition imagined in the context of a room immediately positions the room as an important sort of um you know has an important role uh, within Joanna's work but um you know because I think as a starting point the home offered an environment where you know, life was lived for Joanna and the objects and spaces and people within that space acted as, you know, important markers of specific moments and times and in locations and people and relationships and those sort of things. But they very much, um, the rooms and the spaces she occupied, you know, they also provided an important lens out, outward into the environment, outward into the landscape. And so that relationship between the interior and the exterior and how the interior could offer a view out to the exterior is something that this exhibition uh, has definitely been exploring um, across the works. That's very interesting. Um, just before we came on air, we were talking about the possibility of people who like Frances Hodgkin's work would also like this. And a lot of Frances Hodgkin's work had that same effect um, looking or actually bringing the outside to the inside mm-hmm. um, which is quite interesting yeah. yeah yeah I looked quite a lot in in the essay I wrote around creating a context within art history our art history for Joanna um, and and also looking at the artists that she was looking to and particularly these relationships between between the home and the land and I think when we talk about lived experience in her work we're not simply talking about domestic experience I think the way that she approaches her work provides us a very interesting way to think about the landscape and its agency in our art history and the way we have written those narratives which has been in a limited way you know we understand the landscape is somehow 
are separate um, to our experience of home. Whereas I think Joanna is a painter who paints um, how she's experienced the world and the world is this collapsing sort of zone between um, between interior and exterior, between land and between um, domestic environments, um, between the physical and the spiritual. And so, you know, I think she's an artist that operates in that space. Um, Hodgkins is really important to her and it's a really important way to understand her as well. And I think this exhibition also gives us some signals to challenge our art history in the way it has looked at Hodgkins also. So what one of the entry points that I used in my essay was a review that Paul um, wrote of Francis Hodgkin's um, a Francis Hodgkin survey exhibition that was held in Auckland in 1969 when she was writing for Crackham, I think. Um, and what she highlights is actually a very uh, marked ambivalence towards Hodgkin's from the art establishment in New Zealand at that particular time. And that's and then you know you start to pull resonances and, and comparisons between the two in their practice across time. So I think you know we often talk about artists in conversation with other artists, and I think. Joanna Paul is someone you can understand in conversation with Hodgkins and it's a very revealing thing both directly through their work but also through the way we've thought about their work across time. You know, it's wrong to it's wrong to think that that our art community has always been receptive to Hodgkins. Um, in actual fact, that's a complicated relationship to unpack as well. Um, you've been, if you've just joined us, I'm talking to curators at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, Lucy Hammonds and Lauren Gutzel, about the exciting new Joanna Paul exhibition uh, in the context of a room. It opens in Dunedin Public Art Gallery on the 7th of August, Saturday. So make a diary note that there will be a curator's tour of the exhibition at 11am on the 7th of August. Uh, Lucy and Lauren, we have talked a little about the Joanna Margaret Paul exhibition, but could you elaborate on some of the media that she's used in her work? Yes, sure. Uh, so as we've talked about, you know, um, we've really tried to highlight the multidisciplinary nature of Joanna's practice. And so the show um, spans uh, painting, drawing, uh, photography, film, um, and text-based works as well, artist books, um, and text, because Joanna was also a poet, um, that side of uh, her work is not as present in the exhibition as it is in the publication. However, her and her use of text and language within her paintings and drawings and things is very present as well. So, um, yeah, we think that there'll be... And the great thing, because we've been working on this project with... Um, the Joanna Margaret Paul estate, who have been very, very positive and supportive. It's been really fantastic, and we're very, very grateful. But they've got a huge um, holding of Joanna's photography, and much of which has been unseen. Uh, so we've been able to draw on that collection, and there's a lot of photography that people will be seeing for the first time, and um, we're really that's a really exciting part of the project for us. That is exciting. Um, there's probably quite a lot of other works in different media as well that people just have never seen. Do you, have you borrowed from um, other people's collections? We have. We've borrowed works from collections from around Aotearoa, but also heavily borrowed from private collections, which is always a really special thing because you're asking people to give up the works that, for a period of time that they love very dearly and like to live with. Um, but it also means we get to put things on the walls that uh, people might never have had the opportunity to see before. Um, so... Yeah, Joanna's been um, 
she is held in public collections around the country, but not as heavily as some artists. Um, so being able to draw from private collections was really important to sort of shape out this show. That's um, going to be so exciting for everybody, especially um, those who come in the first instance and give feedback to their friends, and mm-hmm. we'll hopefully see big crowds. Um, so I'm just going to ask you um, another question about uh, the viewing of the Stations of the Cross in Port Chalmers. So from the images on the gallery's website, um, those images seem to have quite a directness and a simplicity about them. They um, just remind me just a little tiny bit of Matisse because of that sort of um, sort of linear and, and sort of sparse element that he sometimes uses. But I read the gallery's art post, which tells us that they were painted in the early 1970s, so that would have been in her first years here in um, Dunedin. Um, And then they were covered over by more literal works uh, afterwards by the church, I guess. Uh, What was it like when you first uncovered um, these paintings in the church? It must have been so amazing. Yeah, it was really amazing. We had heard and we knew that they existed, and I think there are people in the arts community here that have had occasionally a chance to view the Stations of the Cross, but we hadn't um, had that opportunity. But yes, the paintings were made in 1971, I think, um, and they do reflect, you know, those are people that, that Joanna had looked to and knew of. Um, it was also shortly after she'd finished studying at Elam um, under Colin McCann, and they've certainly got a relationship to McCann um, and and as we know he also was was um, engaged with Catholicism and the symbolism of abstraction and colour in the land and you know there, there are relationships there certainly. Um, what was amazing to me was that because it, it was very sh- soon after they were painted that they were covered and they've been covered in a sympathetic way in that the paintings have been very well protected um, and haven't often been um, on display for long periods of time. So the colours are so vivid um, and so resonant. And, you know, Paul writes and talks uh, when she's talked about the series about the symbolism of colour um, within these stations. And when you see them in the church, uh, particularly in relation to the windows as well, uh, the colour is sort of... um, it's so bright as to be shocking um, and it's a very wonderful thing because um, of the fragility of the paintings mm. um, in, in some respects the fact that they haven't been um, revealed uh, for, for extended periods of time has been a gift from an art historical point of view um, a, a little more complicated around you know people's inability to see them but you know they became something of a sort of like bit of a, a secret story of Joanna Margaret Paul that we were keen to, to delve into um, yeah. yeah and they became very important I think in the structure of this project something that really came to the fore was the sort of two major phases in her career where she was living in the north and the south and so I think those works became an example of very early painting here in Dunedin so when she moved down here her sister Charlotte was actually studying medicine at Otago University so there was a desire to be closer to her sister and then she rented a house in Port Chalmers and she just totally fell in love with the with the town and its sense of community and its views of the sea and you see that uh, very much reflected in drawings and paintings that were being made at that time um, and so those works 
you know, for us to be able to have them uncovered for a period of time and ask people in our community uh, to go out there um, to Port Chalmers and sort of uh, be in the place in which she, they were physically painted, it feels like a really special thing. And I think it's been interesting when we were doing lots of research for the book because we don't know whether when Joanna wrote, was interviewed about them, um, she mentioned that they were painted over. Um, so I think we're not sure whether she always thought that they were actually destroyed and no longer existed rather than actually what happened is they had other works hung over top of them. So... Um, it's interesting. Yeah, we just don't know whether um, she knew that they still do exist because they are really important examples of her work, but also of um, Christian art here in New Zealand. And um, so her sister's sister probably was really amazed as well then because, she, you know, you can imagine that she was told that they had been painted over. Yeah, I think mm. people people had um, come to know that they had been preserved over the last yeah, decade recently. or so. Okay. Yeah, they, they've right. been um, uncovered in subject of of different um, sort of one day events and things like that. So, um, I think what um, has been great about this part of the project is that we had the opportunity because one of the things we were engaged with in the project was putting into the public record uh, a very remarkable artistic career that we could take the opportunity to go out to the church, work with them, and they've been very welcoming to us, uh, and arrange to have the paintings cleaned, um, to have them documented and sort of the record of those works secured, uh, and then to publish that in the book with um, some context and some some sort of thinking around the role of spirituality, for instance, within Paul's work. Uh, And then... um, to be able to work with the church so that the church can then welcome our visitors um, to drop in and see the works over the next week. So um, we're doing that for the first instance um, in the time leading up to and immediately after the opening of the exhibition. Um, And then hopefully we'll have another opportunity over the next few months to to, uh, wrap some more um, opportunities for people to visit. That's um, that's great. I will talk about the timeline um, a little bit towards the end of the interview, but I was just wondering... Um, if there was, um, I'm always fascinated by tempera, mm. and I wondered if there was anything else that she had done and painted in tempera, or did she think in terms of what one would expect from, you know, a a, a, a church or. Um, do you know if there's anything else that she's done in tempera? Yeah, I haven't come across anything uh, myself within the process of making the exhibition. And within the ex- works that are in the exhibition, mm. no. Mm. Um, we've got the working some of the working drawings for uh, these stations in the exhibition. And Great. I think those are um, ink and wash and, um, and acrylic watercolour on paper. Um, when she's been interviewed, when Joanna was interviewed or, or spoken to sometimes about the station she certainly did talk about the context of the church and the architecture of that church it's uh, got these plaster niches that are um, integrated into the wall panels and so it, it's it and it's a small church it's mm. quite formal uh, and it does have a feeling of you know what you might expect from a from a modest sort of renaissance chapel or it it comes with that sort of visual language and I think in part she was probably um, responding to that context you know she was someone who had travelled well she was well travelled before she moved here 
she was well versed in um, religious iconography and art histories, uh, and and she was practicing Catholic as well at the time. I'm correct, mm-hmm. um, and so you know these were familiar histories of of art that she was working within, and I think her choice of materials, I suspect, was in response to the context that she was working in. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree, mm. and that's something that she did throughout her entire career. She was responsive. The mediums she would choose were very, very responsive to the context in which she was making work, and that could be, um, as Lucy's talking about, like to the architecture and the history of a particular sort of site or type of um, painting practice, but also to her own environment. Like when she became a mother, her materials and medium would often shift to sort of work within the confines of what it meant to have a toddler running around, but maybe oils were no longer the most practical form, so that's when photography and um, medium that were a little bit more, um, I guess, faster, easier access, different processing times and drying times and things would sort of come into the fore. So I think very much a consideration of that material in a given context, I think, would probably have shaped that decision. That's, um, that's very special. Um, and it makes it more special for everyone who, um, who will be um, going to have a look at the work. So I would hope that a lot of um, Dunedin Otipoti people do tune up there. So I think we might just wrap up there. So thank you very much for being on the show, Lucy and Lauren. And um, it's been a pleasure. And we wish you the very best success with the exhibition and the book. And um, so I'll just confirm the times for the viewing of the Stations of the Cross in Port Chalmers. Um, listeners, you can view these paintings by Joanna Margaret Paul from Wednesday the 4th of August to Wednesday the 11th of August at St Mary's Star of the Sea, 38 Magnetic Street, Port Chalmers. That's 38 Magnetic Street, Port Chalmers. I'm sure it'll be fairly obvious as it is a little church. The gallery asks that you um, visit between 10am and 4pm and be respectful of any church activities that may be taking place. The gallery would also like to thank Father Mark Chamberlain and St Mary's Star of the Sea for this special viewing. Thanks, Linda. Great, thank you, Linda.
You've been listening to Philip Glass, the poet acts from the film The, the Hours. Coming up next, we'll be talking to um, the ID Dunedin Fashion Emerging Designers team, and um, we will see you in a few seconds. of the city. From exhibitions of works from the gallery's own collection to the best of local, national and international shows, there's always something to inspire and challenge. Dunedin Public Art Gallery in the Octagon is open every day from 10 till 5 with a free children's play space and a great gift shop with the best range of cards in town. Check out dunedin.art.museum for a full list of exhibitions, events and activities. Kia ora koutou. Welcome to those listeners who have just joined us 
on today's Otago Access Radio Arts Hub. I have with me in the studio Margot Barton and Sally McMillan, who will talk to us about the 2021 ID Dunedin Fashion Emerging Designers, which is the second iteration of the online virtual event. The first was in 2020. Margot Barton is a New Zealand fashion designer, milliner and a professor and academic leader of the fashion design program at Otago Polytechnic. In 2017 she took over the position of chair of the ID Dunedin Fashion Week organising committee. She has participated in fashion across the spectrum and her expertise is recognised nationally and internationally. Sally McMillan is a practising lawyer but also has many positions outside of her law practice such as Honorary Solicitor to the New Zealand Federation of Graduate Women, Honorary Solicitor to the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society, Patron of the Otago Polytechnic School of Art and a board member of Dunedin ID Fashion and that's just to name a few. Today, Margot and Sally will be talking to us about the 2021 ID Dunedin Fashion Emerging Designer Awards, which were held online. Kia ora, Margot and Sally. Thank you for coming in to talk to us today. Could you give the listeners a little background on the ID Dunedin Fashion Emerging Designers Awards? Uh, Kia ora, Linda. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, well, the ID Emerging International Designer Awards started in 2005. It was inspired by a competition in Italy called Mittelmoda. Um, and they know that they inspired us, and actually we did have a very close collaboration for some time, and we're still in touch. Uh, we really wanted the opportunity to invite mainly New Zealand and Australian emerging designers to come together and to learn from each other and make friends and collaborate. So that was the original um, motivation behind the awards. So this year was our 17th year. And I think important to add to that too, Linda, that uh, as ID has emerged, it's turned out that we are in fact the only fashion show and awards um, of its type uh, in the Southern Hemisphere and that is largely why it's been so successful over the 17 years that it's developed. That's amazing. Um, I had no idea it was it had such a sort of an iconic and solitary position and very successful one as well. Mm. Um, I've sort of tracked ID for quite a few years and um, and watched some of the changes and it's always very professional and um, and very forward thinking I think. Yeah, um, and so many of the uh, participants are and have been in the past from countries apart from Australia and New Zealand, from around the world really, and the COVID outbreak impacted severely on many of the designers who have historically flown into Dunedin um, for a fashion show. Although I would imagine that things have changed a bit since those fashion shows, but. How did organising? How did the organising committee go about their solution to the impact of COVID? That must have been quite complex. Yes, I'll just go one step back and talk about. Uh, I did mention that it was. Set, we thought it would only be Australian and New Zealanders, and it was for the first year. But after that, were people from all around the world. Um, well, I think it was in February last year. Uh, so we went in a lockdown, and I don't think there were any lockdowns anywhere, maybe in China, and um, but we could see what was emerging, and it, we had done one lot of judging in Dunedin, because we had, had our call, 
and the second lot of, lot of judging was uh, about to occur in Auckland. And I got really concerned and went back to the board and said, I think we're going to have to pull the plug, but could we try this? Could we try doing a video? Because we don't, we want it to continue and um, maybe this will work. And could we talk to some local filmmakers to see if it was possible? And I think it's fair to say too that as a as an organisation, because we're a creative enterprise, um, we're reasonably early adapters. Mm. Um, we were probably one of the first organisations that made a call on accepting that we were going to be in lockdown and things could get quite grim. But we're also quite, um, speaking of grim, grimly determined, one of the outcomes I suppose of having so many young people from all around the world who want to participate in this event and we're amazed by that every year by the number of them and by the degree of talent but how that reverberates on us as a board is that we feel a huge sense of responsibility uh, that the show must go on. Mm Well, I'm I'm one of very many people who think that we're very pleased that it has gone on, um, but administratively wise, it must have been quite a large, probably a larger job than it had been had it been um, in sort of like real life rather than virtual life. Mm, hard to say. Yeah. I, th- I think it's logistically because we're working with a professional film team that it was a much easier load, to be honest. But I think we really were able to leverage off the fact that the people that are submitting footage for the film are unlike old ladies like Margot and myself and other elderly people on the board. (laughs) You know, these are kids, from our perspective at least, young adults uh, in their 20s and sometimes late teens and, you know, upwards from there. But, you know, in the the overall age group that these people fall into, um, by and large they have great technical ability. And so we were able really successfully, surprisingly successfully, um, able to, I guess, outsource a lot of the work to them themselves and say, look, if you want to be part of this, you have to go away and take your clothes and either if you're locked down, you have to do it in your hallway. If you're able to go outside, you need to go to the local park or the skateboard ramp or wherever, like a huge range of different places that these amazingly creative young people took their clothes and they provided us with the footage. They sure did. They were fantastic and really creative, but not all young, Sally. No, not all young. I'm being corrected on that. (laughs) But young, of course, being a relative term. uh, Young designers, so emerging designers are not all young, and I think this year one of our designers was in their 50s, and that's not the first time that we've had an emerging designer in their 50s. It's fantastic. It is great, but I do have to say that um, my son is in his mid-40s, and he is an IT expert, so, you know, it's... The, the the people of the older generation, not including myself, <laughs> uh, definitely are very technically oriented. And I had a look at some of the film online and um, just so clever. And some of them may have 
been so passionate that they wanted to spend a bit of money and get someone professional to mm. f- film for them as well, I suspect, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, things like makeup and, and just the whole shebang, you know, just so, so amazing. They really, really, all of these people, old, young, middle-aged, whatever age they were, <laughs> they embraced <laughs> this challenge. And I think in a, in a weird kind of way, the fact that a lot of countries at the time that they were making these films were in lockdown. This was a fantastic little project for yeah, them. And absolutely. we saw that in the material that we received. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so um, if you've just joined us uh, on Access Radio, um, it's Lunchtime Arts Hub and I'm talking to Margot Barton, Chair of ID Dunedin Fashion Week, and Sally McMillan, Member of the ID Dunedin Fashion Board. We are uh, talking about the Emerging Designer Awards for 2021 and just the Emerging Designer Awards generally and speaking in that way, Emerging Designer um, sort of as a general uh, idea, it's always been very innovative, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, right from the very beginning. Um, And so now there is the Emerging Designer Award and the um, other catwalk uh, display that used to happen with some of the more um, sort of experienced designers in um, New Zealand particularly that has um, gone by the by for the moment. Uh, we did show the Godmothers this year as a part of the Emerging Designers, which was great. Uh, um, that's very good. Because they really located us in Dunedin. They were really important, especially with the incredible exhibition Fashion Forward at the Otago Museum. So yeah, we did uh, put both together this year, which we loved. Uh, that's great. I feel a little bit ignorant there, but I did go to the show, and I thought the show at the Otago Museum was a stunner. That's mm. finished now? No, that's on until October the 17th. Perfect. So um, those listeners who would like to just have a bit of a, a check out on some of the works mm. in the um, Fashion Forward show at the Otago Museum, um, amazing, really amazing, because the museum... The museum has taken some of its works out of its collection, mm. is that right? Mm. And put them with some of the um, uh, m- more contemporary works, and they work so well together. It's a great mm. show, really good. Mm. Yep. Um, We've so had amazing feedback on that show, Linda, and um, I think particularly the fact that it's happening at a time when we're not in lockdown. Um, a lot of people from all around New Zealand are you know, doing that roadie that we're all supposed to be doing, uh, and record numbers in fact attended the museum show in the first few months so it's well worth checking Mm. out really really good did the uh, museum put it online i don't know if they have online yes film filming or not of exhibitions yeah we've just uh, got a virtual um tour through it so i can send you the link to that i would love to have that link Mm. yes and so you could access that through the otago uh, museum yes yeah wonderful so that sounds really really good um, so um, I wonder, just talk about perhaps how many entries you had um, on, in a general manner, sure. because probably there were a lot, and how those were, how the 40-odd were selected, um, because that must be quite a hard job. Oh. And you have a judging panel that you, do you have a different panel every year? Uh, we have some, some of the judges are, are there all the time, or have been there for some time, so there's Tanya Carlson is our head judge, so she's been there since the beginning. And usually we have Margarita Robertson from Nomdi and uh, Donna from Mild Red, Charmaine from Charmaine Reveille and Sarah from Company of Strangers. 
This year we also invited um, some of the former winners and uh, finalists. Uh, Carla Van Lunn, who won the very first ID Awards in 2005, and her outfits in the show at the museum, was one of the um, one of the judges. And what's lovely, I think we had 18 judges. What's lovely is that they can be anywhere in the world. So, if I, yeah, which is great. Yes. So usually we could have one fantastic international judge and figure out how to get them here, but this way we can have many. Um, and I think it's really important to get a diverse group of people looking at them. But if I take you back to the pre-selection for the finalists, there was over 150 entries oh from all goodness. around the world. And um, I'm not one of the selectors, um, oh, but I have to watch it. <laughs> I see all... Um, it's it's uh, it's a very very hard task. I really take my hat off to those judges. So I, I try and encourage them to have one um, designer from each school, if possible, or at least each country. And that's because our philosophy of trying to get people together and make friends, although it's a little bit more difficult online, um, being the being the the reason or the motivation that we're doing it. We don't want a whole lot from one institution. No, I understand. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, so they, they um, we have them all out around the table at the Polytechnic and these judges. I think there was the five godmothers this year, so the Dunedin designers uh, rated them and then negotiated and we came up with 40. So 40 was more than usual, but we wanted to have a live show as well and we thought we needed at least 10 New Zealand designers to be able to have a good live show. So um, usually we would probably only have three New Zealand designers, mm -hmm. which is why we had more designers this year. Yeah. Um, I have to say that um, the, um, the video that I watched was really um, entertaining and wonderful. The, the ideas that people come up with you know, are so amazing. And also um, there's a sort of a... Um, differences that used to be within cultures have mm. kind of merged in a way mm. and people are um, utilising a lot of different aspects of different cultures mm. and so it's become a lot of, a lot more um, sort of harmonious perhaps you might say or not so cut and dried depending on which country you come from. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Linda, because we call it an international event, and I think sometimes we, um, as New Zealanders, have a bit of a tendency to stick international in the front of things to make them sound sort of more important than they actually are, um, and a bit flash. <laughs> but technically speaking, this is a genuinely international event mm. um, with international standard entries from, I think, how many countries this year, Margot? Oh, please I don't ask count. me a thing. We don't want to be too exact, but more than 20. Now, when you think about that, um, you know, those people are submitting entries to us based here in Dunedin mm. for a relatively modest and scale fashion show mm. held at the Otago Museum. If anybody else in Otago was doing something on that scale, I strongly suspect they'd get a lot more um, publicity and, 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 dare I say it, financial support um, mm. than what we do. It, it is actually quite extraordinary. Um, 
Yes, I um, I would agree with you. And um, so the powers that be out there do be listening at this point in time about such um, such things because it is important to have enough funds to be able to create something that you feel proud of as well. Um, so um, we've run, we're running out of time. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for being here on the Arts Hub, Margot and Sally. Congratulations on a supreme effort organising the online exhibition and the prize winners. Um, listeners can go to the website, the ID Donate and Fashion website, to view the video and the innovative designs. And I just noticed that finally the um, the People's Choice Awards had been um, finalised and there were winners there as well, so you'll be able to look at those. So all I can say is um, long live ID Donate and Fashion. It's such a boost for local and international emerging fashion designers and for Otipoti, and thank you for all the unseen mahi that goes on behind the scenes. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. So now we'll listen to uh, Nick Cave. Um, um, that is one of um, Margot's favourite um, musicians and singers. Thank you. <laughs> Kiss me again, re-kiss me, then kiss me. Slip your, Slip your frigid hands beneath, beneath my, shirt. my shirt. This useless, this useless old, old fucker, fucker with his twinkling cunt. Leave me to my enemy dreams. 
That was Nick Cave with Green Eyes. You've been listening to Arts Hub, our weekly spotlight on the arts scene in Aotearoa, Dunedin. My thanks to Lucy Hammonds and Lauren Gutzel and to Margot Barton and Sally McMillan for joining us today. If you'd like to listen again to this programme or past editions of the show, you'll find podcasts of Arts Hub from ORFM's website oar.org.nz. On next week's programme we have Dunedin Public Art Gallery visiting artist Sonia Lacey on the show and Kate from Dunedin Dream Brokerage here um, in the studio. Ka kite. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.